Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. You're listening to The Cultured Bumpkin, a literature podcast with Jake Phillips, where we present audiobook quality readings of the classics for your enjoyment. Thank you for stopping by. And remember, just because you're a bumpkin doesn't mean you can't be cultured. All right. Hello and welcome to The Cultured Bumpkin. Today we have uh, just a super interesting person named Melissa Ratliff. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, um, I came across your account on TikTok. I want to say you were talking about the Titanic. And as I, I was looking, I was like, this, this gal is uh, like super, like you have so many interests. And I think that's great. And I can't think of a certain, uh, like a, a specific quote, but I, I think it's, uh, I just think cultured people have a wide range of interests. So Melissa, thank you for coming on. It's so nice to be here. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Good deal. Well, uh, could you tell us a little about yourself and then I'll start into my questioning. Yeah. Whatever you're willing oh, to share. Yeah. Whatever you okay. So um, I'm Melissa. I am a Kentuckian by birth who wandered down to Florida somehow. Uh, in my like nine to five, I'm a journalist. So that's a lot of fun. So I do a lot of the uh, the typical true crime on air, also talking about topics that we're all discussing, local news, basically. Um, I miss Kentucky a lot, though. I, I lived there for the vast majority of my life. Uh, I, I'm a theater kid at heart, uh, but I also I, I've always grown up loving. Um, I have a degree in writing, and uh, that's how I kind of got into news. But also, I love reading, and then I'm also a history nerd. History is like my favorite subject in school. I didn't pursue it professionally, but uh, during the pandemic, I got bored, as one does, and I uh, started making videos on TikTok, and then. I realized I couldn't dance like the kids. I've never been a good dancer. Um, and no set, no music and, and no comedy. So I just started telling history stories and it kind of blew up. And uh, that's what I'm known for. Then that actually led to a podcast. And I have a podcast called God's Favorites, a history podcast. And it's led to some really cool opportunities. And that's the that's the uh, TLDR, as the kids said, the too long didn't read the uh, the, the very short version. <laughs> okay the uh i actually haven't heard that i'm not I'm so not it's a reddit term i just picked it up it's, okay <laughs> the I, TLDR, yeah. too long didn't read it's the two sentence summary there you go nice. i have had that thought before but i didn't put it to those words the um so quickly what is the podcast about obviously history but what kind of stuff do you talk about um so i, I actually have to explain the um the title a lot because everybody assumes it's kind of like a religious podcast or something along those lines. It's, it's not, it's just straight history. Uh, but the term God's favorites actually came about because I started covering uh, Titanic second officer who you can see like the wrong mirror peeking over my shoulder there, okay. uh, Charles Lightoller, because he had a very, very fascinating story where he just kept getting into catastrophe after catastrophe and surviving 
with without a scratch and i always just said well he's god's favorite so it's a podcast that kind of talks about people who were really stupidly lucky or just continue to beat the odds or then you have some people in history like napoleon who's another one of my hyper-focused people uh, who thought he was God's favorites and just kept trying his luck until he eventually lost. So it's it's more of a term describing those people who just keep having really stupid luck or amazing Okay, stories. okay. Interesting. You know, now that you mention it, I've heard that before. Like, you know, Lord must love that kid, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but, I, okay, that makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, so um, it's, it's those stories. Napoleon, have you seen the new movie? I want to i have not yet because and i shouldn't have let this this guy be but every person i know who has seen it does not like it and i'm scared i'm getting actually ready to cover napoleon on the podcast i'm like do i wait until after the movie to do this or after the podcast to see the movie but i don't know i'm i i have been wanting to see it forever i think joaquin phoenix was like perfect at least yeah. wise acting wise yeah. um, and i I'm a little intimidated by it, to be honest. Uh, but I, I will, I will see it at some point. But yeah. I'm hesitant. The uh, you know the historian, uh, British historian Dan Snow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I saw him say, and he was talking about it, and this was some months ago before it even hit the theaters. But he's he someone said, "Are you going to see it? Do you think you'll like it?" And he said, "I loved his answer." Uh, he said, uh, "Absolutely, I'm going to see it. I think I'll love it." I don't think that it will be historically accurate, but I think it'll start lots of conversations and it'll be a fun thing and it'll be good entertainment. And then I was like, that's a good way of looking at it. And I know Ridley was Ridley Scott was talking about don't historians don't watch this. But I mean, I can I can forgive a lot uh, in, in movies in terms of history. But there were some things that I'm like, I'm a little nervous because I know I have a friend who is a Napoleon reenactor professionally and oh, he wow. hated it. I was like, oh, no, 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 don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. So I'm going to go into it with an open mind. I'm just trying to decide if I need to mentally prepare for it. But oh my gosh, I, I've always loved the story of Napoleon. Not, not that he's a good guy or anything, but right. he's, he's just so fascinating. So interesting. And people don't know the half of it sometimes with him. They always think, you know, this stereotype of the little short, angry Frenchman, but he's just incredibly interesting. Speaking of short, how tall was he? He was about five seven, so five six, five seven, like an average, okay, okay. just average. Very so, average for that time, right? He, yeah, and the like the anything that kind of made him shorter, or there were some you know historic things that were documented incorrectly, but mostly it's just propaganda that shows him as this tiny little angry man. So the English were lying, right, <laughs> right. you know, English propaganda, British propaganda. So it's very, but he was just pretty average. Okay. Because when I was younger, I, somebody had gone to somewhere and brought back a picture and was like, that's Napoleon's grave. And he's only four foot, you know, he, he named something that was very short. And no. so for a long time, all my life, I thought he was like dwarf, like a dwarf. Yeah, he's you know, like, like a short, I five short. one in some places, but I know there has to be some sort of you know demarcation that was just incorrect or measured differently. But yeah, he was just a pretty average guy. Right. Okay. Putting this and, little. One of the things that one of the things I like the most about him is just well, he was you know Corsican, not not born French per se. They they took over France. France takes over a lot, just like the English. Um, and so he comes to France to military school and he's just constantly ridiculed by his classmates and he's picked on. He's just the quiet, smart kid who gets picked on a lot. And so I always say, like, don't pick on the quiet, smart kid because you get Napoleon Bonaparte as your boss and then you're freezing to death in Russia. It's just not, it's not a good thing. But he was um, 
always out to prove people wrong about him. And that was one of the things I, I find most interesting about him. He did a lot of terrible things, but he's just such a fascinating guy. Interesting. So you have, uh, have you covered him on your podcast? That's coming up. So I'm getting ready to, I've been working on it. I've been um, writing. I was trying to do it. And I was, that's when I was like, I, if I do the podcast, do I want to do the podcast before I watch the movie so that the movie doesn't color anything for me? Okay. Um, but, you know, I'm getting ready to do, have a series come out on Napoleon probably toward the end of the month. I was aiming for November, but uh, life. Uh, so we'll be doing a Napoleon series at the end of the year, into the new year. And then at the end of January for my birthday, I'm going to go to Corsica. From a, for, really? I've never been to Corsica. Um, I've been to France, obviously. I, I lived there for a little bit. But I'm going to go to Corsica just and stay around and look at some of the, you know, his childhood home and things of that nature. So okay. I'm very excited about that. That'll be great. The um, yeah, because I like I love history, but it's like you can't know all history equally. You kind of have to pick, you know, different spots to to zone in. So the last couple of years, I've been in a history of the American West with emphasis on kind of the the Native American tribes and stuff. Um, That's good. And then before that, it was kind of like English history, French, and then specifically Napoleon. I don't know a lot about. And so I definitely want to check check that out. That's how but, I feel about when I, I see all the kids talk about, you know, everybody saying like, oh, how often your boyfriend is thinking about the Roman Empire. And that's like yeah. a trend on TikTok. I'm like, I never really got into it. Uh, but I know a lot of guys who are into the Roman Empire. But yeah, no, French Revolution is a big one for me. So French Revolution yeah. into Napoleon. The Haitian Revolution is one of my favorites because that's all intertwined together. Right. Uh, and then I like Edwardian history, which it's how I like World War. And then that, following that up with World War One, I. I much prefer World War One to World War Two, which is an unpopular opinion on TikTok. Sometimes okay. I think World War One's much more interesting. Interesting. Okay. So when you say uh, Edwardian, can yeah, you I like the, that? the Edward. Yeah, can, the that's that time period in which you know you have the Titanic, like the the reign of Edward, and and it's mostly just that it's the period right before World War One. And I have this kind of depressing analogy, but all I think about is that, so you see the Titanic and everybody gets romanticizing the Titanic and the Lusitania right before we're in that period of time there. Um, and what you see is people romanticizing it. And I think about it the same way we look back at the 90s now prior to 9-11 mm -hmm. and how we World War I happened. It's like around the, you know, shortly after the Titanic sank. And I think we look at that and I think that's the reason if you look at the show like Downton Abbey, it starts with the Titanic and ends the series, ends after World War One, because that was that period of time where everything started changing rapidly. So it feels right. very much as a 90s kid, like there's a big parallel there. Like that was the last time everybody was kind of chill and happy. And then all of a sudden, death and destruction in, on a scale that nobody had ever seen before. So it's pretty, right. that's one of my favorites to study. Um, it's it's always hard to get for me to get all the military history down, but uh, I, I do enjoy that whole time period. Interesting. Okay. So you said World War One. Um, I, I know just because of listener feedback, I have a lot of World War Two, uh, you know, fans, if you want to call it a fan. The World War Two um, boys are, are, are around forever. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and not just World War Two boys. Like one, uh, one girl I know, I mean, she's um, uh, one friend of mine heard that I knew a guy from um, Easy Company of 506, oh, like Band of Brothers. Oh, and, and, and she was like, oh, can I get his autograph? So I got I got oh, his I autograph. Um, yeah, great story. The um, But World War One, do you, because I couldn't do this with World War One. Can you, can you give like a bird's eye view, 
the the short version of how did it start? Why were people fighting? All right, let me get stretch here. Okay, okay, <laughs> stretch first. Um, this is basically going to start. Did you take uh, like any sort of AP call it like classes in high school about European history? I mean, well, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw something out at you. You may know it's called Maine, which is the the anachronism we used to remember it: militarization, alliances, imperialism, nationalism, all coming together. Uh, and what you have was basically a bunch. I also call it the world's biggest family feud because all of the European families were related to each other. All these royal families, like the Tsar of Russia is related to the Kaiser and they're all related to the King of England. And this is all going to come down to uh, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire basically starts this, they're in Serbia. And so the Serbian nationalists who don't want to be colonized or, or you know, in the empire of, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, there's the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who is not his uncle. His friend Joseph is his uncle. He's the real leader. But And in the scheme of things, Franz Ferdinand's kind of a moderate guy. Not He's not, he's not his uncle, but they kill him. And when you kill moderates in history, it tends to not go very well. And thus it just starts this chain effect and Germany's in an alliance, but Germany is the stronger military power. So they come up with Austro-Hungarians you know, Austro and then all of a sudden it just starts this domino effect where we're all fighting uh, in France. <laughs> I mean, and of course we have other theaters, of course, too, um, with the uh, Ottoman Empire. Um, and it just spreads. It just spreads. And it's one of the reasons that World War One fascinates me. And I do love World War Two. I don't mean it because obviously I'm working to save a boat from Dunkirk. That's my hobby, but we'll get to that. But um, the thing was that it it was war on a scale that nobody had seen before mm. in the sense that we had, you know, some aviation here. We have gas, gas. So the, the visions that are coming out of the trenches are nightmare fuel. And, and it's not anything that anybody knows how to psychologically deal with at this point. So you see a whole, not only people get taken out just by warfare, but just the sheer nightmare of things they have not seen before and they don't have a way to deal with it. So it's, it's absolutely the turning point in world history to me, I think, just in terms of what they saw and how much they carried that with them and how much the anger and resentment left over from World War One carried us right in to World War II. Interesting. So I like, but I like both. I'm interested in both. Right. So, but I, there's something about World War One that breaks my heart when you think of all the shell shock. Was I mean, it's not a new phenomenon getting getting shell shock, right. but it was on a scale that nobody had seen before, and nobody knew how to deal with it. And it's I, you can go back and watch footage of them trying to treat soldiers, right. Right. and it's devastating. Plus, we have some of the best you know, poetry from that. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So it's because you have the, the soldier poets out in the, out in the trenches. Yep. And so um, there's a, there's a whole narrative there. Yeah. Um, really powerful. For those, for those listening, Wilfred Owen is a great example of yep. that. Um, and he very much on the anti-war side, like, what are we doing here? It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to die for the king. It, it was yeah. Very, no, Rupert, Rupert Brooke is the one that everybody's like, oh, there would be some, corner or some foreign field that will be forever England. It's like, that's very sweet, but Rupert Brooke was killed in action. And so, right. <laughs> so it's, there's a lot of that. But it's this, there's so much longing and loss in World War One that they just were not prepared for what they were seeing out there. Right. I I definitely think it's 
it's more sad than World War II. Because in World War II, I mean, there was more devastation and death, but it was yeah. there was a much more of a clear villain. <laughs> you know, that well, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the things weren't so muddled. Um, but what happened with World War I is that everybody was at fault in some way. It felt like in Germany, even though Austro it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germany takes the fall because Germany was the superior army. And they were just in an alliance. And it, it, it just... We wouldn't have gotten to World War II without World War One. That sounds kind of silly and simple, but it's the fact that it just it kept the feelings, the pain and the hurt and the suffering carried over to World War Two. And that's where we get World War Two. Because right. the Allies were out helping on revenge with the Treaty of Versailles, that the terms were ridiculous. I mean, in some senses they left this is the reason that we had so much staying power in Germany after World War Two, because they learned their lesson of let's not like just you know, wreck the country and leave with, you know, our spoils because they learned that if you let this country, if you let the country go down again, this is going to lead straight to another conflict. Right. And one thing that I like doing as, as the conversation goes whithersoever it will is like uh, name drop a book. If you can think of any. So one that I'm thinking of, as we're talking, one is called um, over the top, by Arthur Guy Impey. Oh, yeah. It, it was written uh, by a, uh, an American who sort of, he joined in about 1915, you know, because he thought the war would be over and he'd miss out on all the fun. So he went into the the British army. So it's an American in the British army. And it's, it's, it's interesting to say this, but it's hilarious. Oh, gosh. It's, it's, soldiers it's comedy. Always. I mean, he, he's making, he's making a, nothing was dark to him. Everything was funny. And it makes you sort of be able to stomach what he's talking about. So that's a great one. Arthur Guy MP over the top. Um, and then um, um, Rommel Attacks by Erwin Rommel, <clears throat> who is, of course, Rommel, the, yeah. the, the desert fox. I had to read that in when I was in the army. Um, and that's a great even if you're not in the military, that's a great um, you get some history yeah. from it. But it's also a great book on leadership. That's, anyway. And I was like, I was trying to think of because I've read I've read so much uh, right info like World Without End, which was a, which is fiction about different families in different parts of the world with World War One. But I always come back to as cliches. This is going to sound. And I'll take the the cliche. All's quiet on the Western Front hmm. because I had to read that in in high school, and I remember like why am I learning the German German perspective? Not really, you know, differentiating German perspective in World War Two and World War One, which are very very different. Uh, but that was the first time that I felt like sick for the Germans and see, cause you, you always get that Americanized narrative a little bit, that mm -hmm. Western narratives. And then you see um, that German perspective of a, it's like a heartbreaking. That's the one that always stayed with me. That was, that's the book that really got me into world war one, even because it's funny because it's coming from the German perspective, the side that I'm not supposed to care about. And that right. was, I was like, okay, so there's so much more to this before i'm also really into obviously the romanovs i think actually my last three tiktoks have been about the romanovs that's, right, that's, right. that's perfect and that's a another spinoff of the same war because that's all happening at the same time with the russian revolution interesting right because that was that was all happening the same uh yeah the same time that's when the it... reason i really liked world without end by ken follett because that's covering not it's it's covering you, your american oh, your english yeah, yeah. i, I yeah. read the first one i think of that but yeah, the, I, 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 the earth or something one, but world without end was amazing is it world without 
Is that the, no? I'm sorry. It's the Fall of Giants. I'm sorry. Woo, I'm getting my Ken Follett books mixed up. So uh, Fall of Giants is the World War One. Okay. I'm getting the Cathedral series mixed up, but uh, that is the one that's covering these families. One's Russian Revolution, uh, and then you have a, a French family, German. It, it's it, you're getting all these narratives that are going on at the same time, and it gives you a really good perspective on the timeline of how this is all falling apart. And like I said, the Romanovs are also really fascinating. Um, and I just did a couple of videos on them today on my TikTok channel. It just it came up kind of organically, but that's also just it was the death of that family and the Bolshevik up uprising come very much out of World War One and what was happening because you had the Russians losing more men than anybody. And that is saying mm. something that everybody was losing entire generations of men during World War One. Right. So you mentioned the Romanovs. Can you give us a? Uh, I already forgot the acronym for uh, didn't uh, too too long didn't read or whatever. Uh, LDR. Who, who, who are the Romanovs? Who are you talking about? Uh, the so the Roman. Well, that's very because that's very oversimplified when I said the Romanovs because I'm talking about specifically when I'm mentioning the Romanovs here. It's the obviously the last uh, the last of the Romanovs being Nicholas the Second, his wife, and their children. Um, who were murdered. And of course, everybody gets this from Anastasia. And Anastasia, it's a lovely cartoon, but not not what happened. Anastasia did die along with her family. But the Romanovs were the royal Russian royal family. Um, and Alex, the Zarina, who was married to Nicholas II, was Queen Victoria's granddaughter. So there's this incredible tie into like this whole, all the families are intertwined. It's just whenever anybody makes fun of and from Europe makes fun of Americans for marrying their cousins. I'm always like, well, hello. <laughs> um, <laughs> Y'all, your, all your monarchs are related. So, uh, but the tragedy in this family, the, Nicholas was terrible um, at his job. And it's not a job he wanted to do. He is, he, obviously he's the czar. Um, his father was ruled with an iron fist. He didn't. He was just kind of not wanting to be there. And he and Alex were very much in love. But what kind of gets hidden under this is Alex actually inherited, was a carrier of hemophilia. Mm. This is what I was talking about on my uh, TikTok channel today is that she passed hemophilia to her son, the heir to the Russian throne, Alexei. And so she brings in Rasputin. This is the story that we were talking about on TikTok. And it was just Rasputin comes in to take care of Alexei, who could die from a bump on the head, a bump on the arm free bleeding and he um everyone thinks um that alex is having an affair with rasputin they are not she's just hired this healer because she's grasping at straws to keep her son alive and in the meantime russia is suffering in the war um nicholas was just throw it's a war of attrition so they're throwing body after body after body and suddenly there's nobody to work on the farms there's nobody in the factories mm -hmm. and Russians, the, the whole just collapses the food system. And you that's the number one key to revolution right there. Always keep your people fed or they will come for your heads. Just ask Louis and Marie. <laughs> so uh, that's that's basically what causes the Bolshevik uprising. You can't fault the Bolsheviks in a lot of senses because Nicholas was terrible at his job. But also Nicholas was just it felt like he never wanted to do it. So in that regard, I do feel some sympathy for him, but uh, eventually this ends and the, with the family, the family being murdered at a house in Ekaterinburg by the Bolsheviks. And then their bodies are destroyed and buried in, in the woods. And it's a long kept secret until they finally discover the graves many years later. So it's a, it's a really tragic story of just being flawed. I like that story. Just not just because there are so many domino effects that just kept happening one after another and you want to watch it and you want to, you want to like crawl through, like stop, 
tell them that, you know, get your children out of the country because the children were unnecessary casualties in the entire thing. But it's it's just very heartbreaking. Yeah. Wow. This, was that a, a secret for a long time that like, where's the Romanovs? Yeah. That so they, they didn't know they were they I mean, everybody kind of assumed uh, right. I mean, the Bolsheviks under you know, they, they didn't want to come out and say, hey, we killed the kids and the dog because they killed the kids and the dog. Right. Not good PR. They want to keep that PR good. Um, it was it was assumed that Nicholas was dead. There were rumors that maybe they hid, maybe that Anastasia had gotten away. That's how we got the pretender to who was Anastasia. But then DNA testing revealed many years later that the woman who came forward and claimed to be Anastasia was a faker. Mm. Her name was Anna Anderson. She was Swedish. A lot of similarities, a lot of coincidences between her. She had a similar birth defect to Anastasia, but she was not, in fact, the uh, princess. So, um, but the fascination is this, where I said they're all intermarried in Europe. Um, the fascinating thing is that finally, after they decide, they're going to start looking for the graves. Now, they do find most of the bodies in one grave. Two of the others, I think it's Alexei and either Maria or Anastasia, are in a separate grave a little bit away but it's like the son of one of the guards who helps them find the graves. And then what you'll, what you'll love to hear is that they had to do DNA testing and to get DNA testing, they needed a cousin. So they go to uh, Queen Elizabeth and her husband, Prince Philip and Philip provides the DNA that will ultimately identify the Romanovs and the Romanovs are, you know, they are taken and buried in the cathedral. Okay. So it's because of, because of all the interrelationness, it was, it was Prince Philip's DNA who helped identify the Romanov bodies. Interesting. Very, okay. yeah, very, very cooky. Yeah, very strange. So you have to have a certain line of maternal DNA, and Philip was it, and he gladly d gave it, and they they managed to get most of them interred. Although there's some question about the two bodies. I think Alexei's body and uh, it's either Maria or Anastasia. They're kind of Maria and Anastasia were very close to the same age, and the bodies were destroyed with acid, so they it was hard to get conclusive proof. I think those two are actually still being held on to, but the rest of the family is buried. Um, and they have been martyred by the Orthodox Church, but they are now buried properly. Okay, okay. So speaking of, uh, you know, historical true crime, what did you do last week? Oh, my God. Uh, it's not, it wasn't historical true crime, but uh, like I said, I'm a journalist, and um, uh, I, I cover a lot of true crime. And, you know, I, I don't do true crime, like, on my platform at all. I, I do like my job very much, but it is my day-to-day -day job. But I got to be on Nancy Grace randomly to that we had a very very um notorious true crime case unfold right here in our backyard in sarasota so i they recovered the gabby petito case we had some updates and i made a tiktok for work and nancy's producers saw it and then they invited me on as a panelist i was the only journalist i was a little intimidated but i can't confirm she actually does speak in that really loud volume the entire time even when she's not recording <laughs> she's very sweet she's very nice but she does talk like that okay. the entire time um but I was laughing because she kept introducing me as Melissa Ratliff, ABC7, Sarasota. And it was just so, I was like, I tell my friends that when they listen to take a shot, anytime she says Melissa Ratliff, ABC7, Sarasota, you'll be wasted by the end of the episode. But it was a, it was a, it's a sad story uh, just to witness, but it was a really cool experience being on Nancy Grace. That's really cool. I know. I, I, that was, somebody said I can mark that off my uh, Florida journalist bingo card now. Exactly. I was like, I didn't even know that was on there, but great. Exactly. The, uh, now, I, on the little ticker for those, that are watching or will watch, I have your TikTok. Can you say it so that when it goes audio? Oh, so Melissa Fair Lady. Yeah. So 
the story behind that being that my favorite movie is My Fair Lady. It's been my favorite movie since I was 10. Um, and that has just been my user handle on everything since I college. So yeah, that's me, Melissa Fair Lady. So follow me on TikTok. Good deal. And, and, and yeah, check out her um her um, uh, podcast and stuff as well. She just has tons of, of interesting stuff. And and I, I want to ask some other questions. Moving on to or back to, if you don't mind, the Titanic. Okay. Uh, um, gotcha. you're, you, you know, a lot about the, I mean, about the whole event, I, I would say, but the exploration of it, right? Yeah. I, um, I got to cover some of the Titan submersible stuff this summer too, with uh, some local news stuff, but mostly my history comes from, I know a lot about the wreckage. I know, um, I've been obsessed since I was like, I, I feel like every kid goes through a Titanic phase, but mine was pretty intense well before the movie came out. Okay. Um, but yeah, I've been, I've loved the story my whole life. So this summer with the Titan and um, that was the name of it, the submersible. Titan submersible, yeah. The uh, Ocean Gate. Yeah. What are, what are the, what are your thoughts on that? I feel, uh, I, I know that the, I, I will be completely honest that I did laugh at some of the memes. I feel terrible because <laughs> I was like, oh my God, because some of them are just too much, but it was really sad because I know they were equating it to billionaires at the bottom of the ocean. Um, ocean Gate was doing some pretty, important work i know that the the safety um i had actually communicated with them to use some of their footage on a tiktok thing once before and they were quite accommodating they did do a lot of good in terms of researching the bacteria that is destroying they were bringing a lot of university scientists down to study that bacteria so in that regard it was great and i was so sad to see that um oh paul henry um i forgot his last name he, he is a well-known, he was the pilot of the submersible. He wasn't the CEO. He was just a guy who, Nargelet, Paul Henry Nargelet, a Frenchman who just has always been very much in love with the wreck site. And, and he says he always kept going back to it. Um, he was, he had the very prophetic interview that everybody kept watching over again about what would happen if Titan, if, if a submersible he was on imploded. He was just like, I won't know. I won't know I'm dead. And or if we're down the bottom of the ocean, we'll be fine. Um, and then he was also working with a producer, a Broadway producer, on a play about the Titanic. Um, he wanted to do a, a musical about uh, people who were on the Titanic who had premonitions that it was going to sink. So there's this real e eerie, and I mean, everybody like gets up to Stockton Rush making mistakes. And of course, Stockton Rush's wife has a her her uh, great. I believe great great grandparents are Ida and Isidore Strauss, Strauss, who went down on the ship together. The old lady and the old man in the bed in the movie that just decided to go together. Right. Those, were, those are her relatives. So there's a lot of like mm. past connections to it. But Nargelis, I feel terrible for him because he truly just loved the story, and he kept going. He kept finding ways to go back down as often as he could. Um, but uh, he seemed to have that same premonition that he was wanting to write the play about that I thought was kind of a lovely little bit of synchronicity or just, you know, coincidence, one or the other. But it was I was like, that kind of makes me sad. But his family was like, if he was going to go, he would love to go and be next to his favorite wreck forever. So it's there's some sadness in there. And I, yeah. I get that it's real fun to make fun of billionaires sometimes. But it was it was um, there was a lot of sadness there. Right. It's it's a it's it's serious, but also it, it's going to call into. A, I think it's going to change. I'm actually looking very forward to um, covering the inquiries that mm. pop out of this because it's going to be. I one of my favorite things to talk about in terms of Titanic are the inquiries that happened after because some of it is absolute chaos 
it's just so interesting to watch one that the Americans had no clue about anything to do with the, um, you know, nautical world or, or they asked the dumbest questions or how many questions the British could ask. But also it's just really interesting. So I'm looking forward to the Titan um, hearing. Okay. Never that That's going to be sometime, I think, in the next year. They're still, I mean, they have, they had to go down and get the pieces. They got, I'm, I'm sure they've got a timeline. Uh, it was interesting to watch that unfold in real time to kind of, because you can kind of guess like that it imploded pretty quickly, I think, and uh, that they had a good idea that happened, but they still had to look while there was life sustaining supplies on board if it had stays but they obviously i think it imploded very quickly so they had to do all this research so they'll have a report prepared and then what they'll do is they'll interview everybody who worked on building it so that should happen sometime and i think it's going to be the coast guard it should happen sometime in 2024 okay. i'd imagine and that's good that they handed it over to the coast guard because if you look at how embarrassing the uh senate inquiry into the titanic was for the americans it's <laughs> probably for the best they give it over to a organization that knows what they're doing oh. Because the questions in the American one, uh, not good. But yeah. So, um, moving back to the surface, other uh, other other vessels. The tell us about the is it the Sundowner? Sundowner, yeah. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's been a it's it's kind of a slow project, but something I'm pretty passionate about. So. Um, to tell the story of Sundowner, I have to tell the story of Charles Lightoller, and I know people who who have been on my TikTok for a while have heard it verbatim, but just for the TLDR, um, <laughs> that quit the trend. Um, Charles Lightoller was the second officer of Titanic who survived four shipwrecks and a fire at sea, including the sinking of the RMS Titanic, which he does in the stupidest, and I say that with love, but it is the stupidest survival story I've ever heard. Um, he gets trapped up with a grate underneath the fore funnel as it's going under. And he was, he got, he fell off the side after he knocked a, a collapsible lifeboat on its top and he couldn't save it. So he gets thrown into the water when the ship kind of tilts and he decides he's just going to start swimming over to the starboard side. Uh, he gets caught in that grate and he uh, gets trapped against it and is actively drowning his his pocket watch cracks at the time he gets pinned it's like 219 so it's within minutes of his ship being gone oh wow and he's losing breath and as he tells it he was i love how he phrases because he's a very funny guy uh he writes i was getting quite tired of things um <laughs> and then he says he heard the words of the 93rd psalm in his head which is that he gives his flight of angels charge over thee in his head and then there is an explosion. A boiler hits the water and explodes. And it, this we know this is legit because it actually knocks another woman off of who was trapped against the grate as well, Rhoda Abbott, who also will survive. And as this explosion knocks him up after he's been up underwater for several minutes, he ends up right next to the overturned lifeboat that had floated far away. So he ends up right next to this thing. And he's like, good enough. And he crawls on it and he manages to keep it afloat because I couldn't turn it over because it was lined with canvas. It would have sank. I have to explain that all the time because people are like, why don't you just flip it over? Because it would have um, went down. So he balances on top of it with an alternating cast of about 28 men throughout the night. They almost get taken out by the funnel that falls um, at the front of the boat and misses it by inches. And he manages to keep it afloat. They have people falling off the side all night. And they'll, once they'll have people who are trailing behind, holding onto ropes, and once somebody falls off dead, they'll pick somebody else up and put it behind them. And from that point on, they manage to get a boat over once the 
you know, the screaming and the drowning has surpassed, which is terrible, but they, once they, he blows his whistle and they become rescued by other lifeboats. He's the last official survivor. He's, he's the last one on board the Carpathia and he is the senior most surviving officer. Uh, he was not on bridge at the time of the collision, so he doesn't get a lot of the flack for it. Um, but he ends up, he survives all these shipwrecks and, what you see in his life and what I love about his life is that there's this lovely thing where he, everything that's happened to him, he takes something with him and it applies to the um, next adventure in a sense. Um, he was once saved off a deserted Island when he was 15 and they got rescued by a boat. It was like s several men and they didn't have enough room. So the guy starts throwing stuff off of his boat and he's like, all right, sailors get in. They pack them in very tightly and get them to Australia and they make it safely. So he learned how to, you know, pack a boat and balance it. And he learned how to balance on a lifeboat, the, the collapsible lifeboat B from the Titanic. Years later, he's talking to his son, who's a Royal Air Force pilot. His son would be tragically like one of the very first RAF pilots killed during uh, a night raid in World War One. And his son tells him he's he doesn't like flying, which I think is funny. The man survives all these um, <laughs> terrible shipwrecks. And he's like, I don't like flying. But his son's like, oh, you shouldn't worry about if you come up on any planes or anything. All you have to do is watch the nose of this. And he gives a specific example of a plane. I think it's a Metterschnitt or something along those lines that, or Stuka. And it, he says, you just have to watch the nose cone dip down and it will dip down seven degrees when it's locked in and you can avoid it. That son dies. And so anyway, he has a yacht, a motor yacht. Here's the, we're finally coming to the end of the story here. Motor yacht, he calls Sundowner. Just a, it's a typical little 1912 Aberly Pennant, just a, the capacity is 21 and then Dunkirk happens and Dunkirk so happens to take when during World War One, he was on something called the Dover Patrol where he took this exact route from Ramsgate to Dunkirk this exact route so he knows the route so he they call for boats uh, to get the British Expeditionary Forces off the beaches at Dunkirk and he's like well I'll take my boat they usually the the you know the Admiralty would just commandeer him and take them um it wasn't necessarily civilians but given that he has you know um so much experience they're like yeah he could take his boat he also has a son that's on the beach of dunkirk and he wants to go get him off the beach wow. and of course um he's had his oldest son with him his oldest son would also tragically uh not make it to the end of the war but his son on the beach will survive but he's not the one that will come get him but um he gets on this boat the capacity is 21 he comes up on um i lost you where'd you go let me see let me get back in here i'm gonna have to sit here awkwardly until he gets back but um, I keep telling the story. I pause the story and everything. I was like, "Well, I was like, I can keep going." Oh, he's not back. There, there we go. Okay, so <laughs> sorry about that. I was You're I was right. messing with something, trying to move uh, something. On the oh no! Nothing. Oof, no, I was, I was like, "Oh, he's gone." I was like, <laughs> I feel like tap dance, but I was like, "I'll just mute and he'll come back." This <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad for your quick thinking. Um, uh, yeah, that's the theater background. Uh, no. Yeah. Okay, so he's uh he gets the, the sundowner to uh he runs across I think it's the the Worcester that's a you know about he's they, he goes on board and they say how many men can you take back home he's like a hundred the boat capacity is twenty one but he wow. lies and just like he learned from the guy who's rescued him from the beaches they start throwing things overboard they start lining everybody up until they can get exactly one hundred twenty seven men that's including him his sea scout his sea scout named Gerald Oshkoff who's like eighteen years old and his son on the way back. And as they're going back, they run into the plane that his son warned him about. Um, 
that he just used in that random example over breakfast one day. And as he's looking up, he tells his son to get on the helm. And then he's like, he waits for him to engage. And then he sees the nose dip and he tells his son to turn the helm and they miss getting hit. Wow. That takes another run. They do the same thing again. Eventually, um, the uh, the plane follows off after the Worcester because the Worcester saw that they were buzzing the boat and they kind of distract the plane to get them away. But he manages to get 127 men onto that boat built for 20. And um, it's I actually um, got have been working on the project. It's basically just crowdsourcing because the boat was in a museum for quite some time and it fell apart. The museum didn't have any money. And so it was sold into private ownership and I'm in touch with the owner. Not, I don't have anything to do with the restoration. I wouldn't even know where to begin with that, but I said, well, well we could crowdsource for this because the, the damage to it was so much more intense than anybody could have even imagined. Like they started off and they realized that some parts of it had been covered with white paper and painted over um, and that the engine was shaking. So I, I was like, well, I have a platform on TikTok. We'll just raise money. Um, so that was like, I can, I'm good at asking for money as my parents. And, um, so we, we, we crowdsource and I have been writing articles on this boat. It's just kind of sitting, it's dry rotting. Um, but it's amazing. And I've met some of the, the families, like the sons of men who were on board and like, they gave me like some of the logs. They had like printed copies of the logs when it was first restored. And I have a piece of the boat. I can show you if you don't mind me getting out of just a second. I would love, I would love that. That would be incredible. That's, um, so yeah, this is a piece of the boat. That's the picture of the boat, what it used to look like. It does not look like that now. Wow. And uh, that's a piece of Sundowner. That's actually that part is of awesome. the original, yeah, that's part of the original boat is that down in between it's in such bad shape now, but that was the, the I decided I wanted to tell that story just because it's incredible that everything kept lining up in this narrative to, that he would learn something every single time that seemed to pay off. The next time. So I don't know what kind of dividends from a past life he was getting, but he was doing pretty good. But um, he made it back. And once they made it back to Ramsgate, um, one, everybody had been sick because they, they, he was having to clean all that up. <laughs> but they got, they everybody got piled out one after another. And the Admiralty looked at him. He's like, my God, mate, where'd you put them all? <laughs> and there was one man they had. He's like, oh, wait, I'm missing one. And he has to run back in and he pulls open the door and there was one asleep in the toilet. He managed to <laughs> find a quiet place to take a nap all the way back. Nice. and um the son reginald king who was saved on this boat i'm friends with his son gavin and he sent me some some of the, they had printed copies of the logs and he, he said his fa dad's favorite part of that story was that it eventually started making its way down amongst the men that this guy survived the titanic he said about half the people were like great we're saved and he said no no no, no. he survived what about everybody else <laughs> So they were like, they, they were convinced he was a Jonah. They kept calling him Jonah all the way until they got home because they were just convinced it was over. But yeah, that's the, that's the story. And it was just that um, the boat was in such worse shape than anybody thought. Um, this museum was having money problems. It got locked up. There was a fire in the museum. Of course, the boat was fine. I don't even know if <laughs> the boat, you can't kill this man. You can't kill his boat. But um, it's languishing currently um it's dry docked because if it was in the water it would go straight to the bottom so many holes right. um but i've seen it twice i'll probably see her again someday i'm sure uh after she's fixed but right now it's just we i suggested crowdsourcing and i do that to help because i just it's the only piece of this man left on earth he has no grave he died during the um 
Great London Smog of 1952, and they didn't have enough coffins, so they just started cremating people. So he doesn't actually even have a grave. He just had his ashes scattered. And so the boat is like the last memorial to him that really exists. So interesting. I wanted to like help with that. So we were raising money just via, you know, GoFundMe. Also, we have some, we're working on grants and things of that nature, obviously. So it's not just give us your money. We're going to fix the boat. We're doing a little bit of everything because it's going to be. 200,000 pounds just to get it back into even remotely floating order. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it's very special. And I keep the boat <laughs> piece by piece of the boat. And when right. I start to lose my mind, like we're not getting any money, we're not. Cause I've been writing articles and um, I have another one coming up. I think in a military, um, a couple of military publications, I have one coming out about the boat. So I'm, I keep it always in the background, even when I'm not making about content about Mr. Lytle, he's always back there. I'm looking at my, directions messed up here but yeah right. next to law isn't monsieur de lafayette yeah so but, so um, um one where could people find out about charles light toller is there a book about him or is it are you just are you just referring to journal entries from archives or oh no I, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a couple entries for journals about the boat okay. but you have a couple options one i'm actually helping my friend dustin with some research my friend dustin who's a military historian here in the states he's writing a book on light toller right now that's coming out in may 25th. okay so there's one, but if you want the, like the Lightoller has an autobiography, but he, he, it's, a, it's prior to Dunkirk. So it's very much his, just, it's about his life on the sea. Um, he, uh, I, I'm, was planning on recording an audio. It's in the public domain now. Cause it's been out for so long. So we were thinking okay. about me like recording. I don't know how much a Kentucky girl's voice belongs over a sailor, uh, <laughs> from great Britain. Um, but uh, we were going to do an audio book and, and sell that and raise money for the boat. But also you need to read um, Lights by Patrick Stinson. It's also called in a later version, Titanic Voyager. It's the definitive book on his life um, about everything from his birth to Dunkirk and after. So, so Lights, that's his nickname. Lights by Patrick Stinson is the one I definitely recommend if you okay. want to know more. Lights by Patrick Stinson. And what's the one that you said was public domain? His it's his book, Titanic and Other Ships by quote C.H. Lightholder. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. So he this is his memoirs of his um from the age of about 13 to about post-World War One. Uh, and he, it's just he's just writing about the boats. It's Titanic and Other Ships. Titan, not the Titan. I'm putting the no Titan. Oh, Titanic and other ships. Titanic and other ships. Just yeah, it's just him right about all the boats he's been on, um, and a few of his uh, you know, wild tales of things he got into, such as setting off cannons at Fort Denison in Sydney Harbor as a prank that blew out windows and almost got him fired from the White Star Line. He as, as seriously as he's always portrayed in movies, because if you watch Night to Remember, or if you even watch James Cameron's Titanic, he's played so serious. This man was the biggest prankster in the world. His personnel file had to be huge. I'm convinced. Um, just stuff like that. He's a, he's a quite and his right, and it comes across in his writing. He's very sprightly. Doesn't sprightly feels like the word. He's very very elvish and, and puckish, and it's it's quite quite charming. Okay, that's interesting. Wow. All right, and so if someone says, uh, "Man, I want to, I want to." contribute my two mites to the uh the, the sundowner fund how could they do that and and we can 
you know, you can send yeah. send that to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, um, the, to be honest, I can give you the website. It is a British website. So the owner is British or he's, he lives in Britain okay. um, and he's running it. So it's sundowner.online, which is, okay. that's the website. Um, I've, I've never heard of dot online. Also, if you sundowner.online. Let me make sure I get this right. Sundowner.online. I'm assuming that's. Uh, yeah, I, I'd never heard of that uh, that domain until <laughs> I was like, are you sure this is a real website? And this will have photo. You can follow along with the construction of the building. Like I said, I'm not doing anything with the restoration. Obviously, I don't know anything about building, but I am helping with the money. So okay. I'm. Yeah. So there's that is correct. Yeah. Sundowner.online. Uh, and if you want, if you're on my TikTok, there's a link tree in my TikTok. I have just the direct link to the GoFundMe. Um, and anytime I, I publish like an article or something on it, or if I'm in the paper for it, if we have an article on it, I will link that in as well. So that link tree is a good, so if you just go to my TikTok, you can, okay. and the okay. podcast is in that link as well. Excellent. Well, most of this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed, um, learning from you. Um, so if you're listening, whether you're watching now, whether you are catching the replay or listening on audio a little later on, please check the uh the links in the show notes follow melissa at uh at melissa, melissa Fair lady on tiktok and instagram both so you can okay okay nice uh follow her and just uh learn you'll learn a lot and be highly entertained it's so much fun i appreciate so. you putting me on you've been listening to the cultured bumpkin a literature podcast with jake phillips Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this, would you mind going and subscribing and leaving a nice review on whatever podcast podcast platform you heard this on? I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.